Hello and welcome to this podcast on the history of colonization. My name is Fidelity and this is episode 4 on the podcast. So in the last episode, we looked at Columbus. But while Columbus was busy sailing to the Caribbean and South America for the Spanish monarchs, Portugal was not passive too. And this is what I'll be covering in this episode. A Portuguese explorer named Vasco da Gama sailed east on a further journey with much more short-term benefits to their fledgling empire than Columbus. Vasco da Gama isn't as celebrated as Columbus, nor does he have even close to the same sort of legacy, even though he was the one who actually landed in India. There's also much fewer literature on da Gama than Columbus, and I'll suggest several reasons why this is so at the end of this podcast. So if we rewind back a little to before Columbus set sail for the Americas, the Portuguese themselves were making voyages down south along the West African coast, which was legitimate in their eyes, by the Treaty of Alcasovas in 1479, which allowed them to explore south of the Canary Islands, while the Spanish was limited to the north. The Portuguese king, John II, wasted no time in making full use of this treaty, by sending explorations down the coast for the purpose of opening up trading routes and opportunities and to establish contacts with other rulers. In 1482, he sent a squire named Jogo Kaum on a voyage to West Africa. Jogo brought along two limestone columns and the Portuguese royal arms to be erected along the coast. But while they served as landmarks to indicate where the Portuguese had sailed, they were also signs of sovereignty. He would put up the first column at the mouth of the Congo River, and then sail further south to Angola to erect the second one. This marked the first interaction and landing of Portuguese sailors in the Congo Kingdom, located in modern-day Congo and Angola, where the Portuguese would establish a symbiotic relationship with the rulers and also send over a million slaves to the Americas for the next two centuries. In 1484, Columbus arrived in King John II's court, asking to be sponsored for his American expedition. But the king was more interested in continuing down the African coast than heading west to search for Asia. It's also important to note that the expedition that the Portuguese king sent were royal expeditions and not private expeditions like what Columbus had requested for and found in the Spanish court. Jogo would thus make another voyage on behalf of the crown in the same year Columbus arrived in court and reached Cape Cross off the coast of modern-day Namibia before dying there in 1486. Now, enter Bartolomeu Gius, the next Portuguese explorer sent by the king in 1487. It might be useful to look at a map if you're unfamiliar with the geography of Africa. After Jogo's voyages, which had explored the coasts of Congo, Angola, and then Namibia. They were nearing the southern tip of the continent. In January 1488, Gia sailed to the coast of South Africa, but a storm would blow them away from the coast, and very crucially, he would enter what would become one of the most significant trade routes for centuries to come, until the opening of the Suez Canal, the Cape Route. The coastlines of South Africa were rocky and dangerous, and Gia's would have encountered the Agulhas current, which flows westwards from the east coast of Africa. Angius might not have rounded the tip of Africa if he had stuck to the coastline. Instead, this storm led him to what we call the Roaring Forties, 
There are extremely powerful westerly winds between the 40 and 50 degree latitudes, which essentially swept Jaius and his ships around the tip of South Africa. And this would be the first time any European explorer would go beyond the Cape. We don't know if he knew of these winds beforehand, or if he had accidentally discovered them when he was swept out to sea. But we do know that this knowledge and his experiences would eventually lead to the discovery that sailors could go southwest from the Azores Islands before turning east towards Asia, thus bypassing the coastlines of southwest Africa. Gias would return to Portugal in the same year, after venturing to modern-day Eastern Cape before turning back because of low food supplies and a potential mutiny. Interestingly, Gias had named the peninsula which he thought was the southern tip, the Cape of Storms, but John II would rename it as Cabo da Boa Esperanza, or in English, the Cape of Good Hope, supposedly to attract trade in the future. And this was in 1488. But Vasco da Gama would only sail for India in 1497. So here's the question. Why the nine-year gap? Historians have come up with several reasons for why the king chose to delay sailing for India. Some theorize that Portugal was making secret voyages down the South Atlantic to find a better way around the southern tip of Africa, instead of sticking closely to the coast. Others say that the king was distracted by the death of his son in 1491, and his own illness, while another theory is that royal officials were against further exploration due to limited finances in court at the time, and they wanted to stick with what was tried and tested, which was namely the West African trade. The ongoing war with Morocco from 1487 to 1490 also certainly didn't help matters. Eventually, King Manuel I, who would become king of Portugal in 1495, would finally take up the job of his predecessors, and he selected Vasco da Gama as commander of the fleet to India in 1497. Unlike Christopher Columbus, da Gama was part of minor nobility and not the mercantile class, yet the sort of education that they had received was remarkably similar. He learned maritime navigation skills, martial arts, and most importantly, he proved himself to the king through serving in the navy and protecting royal economic interests. Dagama was on the rise in court, and he had supposedly gained a reputation for maintaining effective discipline amongst his men, and a decent amount of diplomatic skills to interact with yet unknown rulers on the voyage. Beyond building stronger boats that could withstand the strong currents and waves for a longer period of time, and selecting crew. Dagoma also chose to bring goods like sugar, honey, red hats, strips of cloth, bells, and so on, but very little gold or silver. This would eventually turn out to be a mistake, for the port that they would eventually disembark in had no need for these goods. They were more interested in precious metals. Some of the more interesting characters on the crew included Dagoma's older brother, Paulo Dagoma, two interpreters, a chaplain, and ten convicts. Vasco da Gama apparently wanted these convicts, quote, to adventure to leave them behind in desolate lands, where, if they survived, they might prove of value to him when he returned and found them again, unquote. So, da Gama set off with four ships and an estimated 170 men in July 1497. What we know of the voyage is mainly attributed to a manuscript discovered in 1834 in a convent in Portugal, found by a historian. It wasn't written by Dagama, but by someone else sailing on the same fleet, although the authorship still remains widely debated. Most people know of Dagama's voyage to India, 
but he did stop on the East African coast along the way, and this is described in the first part of the journal. Historians have often neglected this part of the journey compared to his landing in India, but these experiences on the coast were significant in shaping his subsequent attitudes. In March 1498, the crew landed on Mozambique Island before moving onto Mombasa and Malindi in modern-day Kenya. There is still a standing pillar on the coast of Malindi that tourists flock to, erected by Dagama upon landing in 1498. These landings would be their first interactions with traders on the Indian Ocean route. And in Mozambique Island, the journal describes the traders there as follows, quote, Their robes are of fine linens and cotton stuffs, very fine, of many colours and stripes, and of rich and elaborate workmanship. They all wear tukas on their heads, with silk borders embroidered in gold. They are merchants and trade with white moors, four of whose vessels were here in port, laden with gold, silver, cloth, cloves, pepper, ginger, and silver rings with many pearls, seed pearls, and rubies. All of these articles are used by the people of this country, all these things, with the exception of gold, are shipped here, and that the Moors bring them. Further on, where we are headed, they abound, and the precious stones, pearls, and spices are so plentiful that there was no need to purchase them, but merely pick them up in baskets. Unquote. Now note here that the Moors refers to both Arabic and Indian Muslims as a generic term used by the Portuguese, but also the code itself shows just how rich the trade already was in this area prior to the European arrival. Now, there are similar descriptions along the other two ports that Dagama would dock at, at Mombasa and Malindi. I think it's necessary to introduce the background of these East African ports at this point. They were unlike what Christopher Columbus had encountered in the Caribbean. These were established harbour states. For instance, the book Fort Jesus and the Portuguese in Mombasa describes the city as a very fair place, with lofty stones and mortar houses, well-aligned in streets. The rulers or sultans of these Swahili coastal states were often in conflict with each other, and the Portuguese would eventually use this to their advantage to conquer, although the downfall of these states would occur much later. And the Portuguese were not entirely to blame. At the time of the Portuguese arrival, the population was a diverse mix. While it was predominantly Arab, it was also very Africanized. There were interracial marriages between black women and Arabic men, and this Muslim East African population was decidedly more sophisticated in the eyes of the Portuguese compared to the tribes further into the hinterland. But back to Dagama. He was deeply suspicious of the Muslims, due in large part to the drawn-out war between the Moors and the Portuguese back home. Dagama would fail to establish positive relationships with the rulers. He wasn't the best at diplomacy, although to be fair, those on shore that he met could be rather hostile at times too. Now, the journal goes into these accounts of conflict, and some can be rather brutal to read. In particular, when Dagama was docking in Mombasa, he tortured the Muslim pilots who had attempted to escape by, quote, dropping drops of boiling oil on their skin so that they would review any treachery against the Portuguese, unquote. The journal eventually describes the people they meet at the ports as dogs, or pejos in Portuguese. Dagama would bring a Gujarati pilot on board, but this was only possible because the Portuguese had kidnapped the ambassador sent by the local ruler. 
this pilot would play a significant role in guiding the Portuguese fleet safely to India. Da Gama's exploits along the East Africa coast is best summarized in the book A History of Portuguese Overseas Expansion, which describes his attitude there as follows, quote, He adopted a belligerent and hostile attitude towards those he assumed were his enemies. It was to prove next to impossible for future Portuguese captains to break out of the vicious cycle of violence and recrimination, which began with the first voyage to the east. Nor were Dagama's relations with the Samudri of Calicut much more successful, and a series of misunderstandings, which had their origin in the Portuguese captain's incurable suspicion of all Muslims, almost led him to break off diplomatic relations entirely. With Dagama's mission, direct European contacts with the East got off to the worst possible start. Unquote. With that quote, we'll take a break and continue on to the city of Calicut in the next half of the episode, where Dagama finally lands in India. In May 1498, Dagama reached Calicut in southwest India. This was where his East African experiences resulted in him waiting for boats to approach his ships instead of docking ashore. He sent one of the ten convicts aboard onto land, and the men replied to two Tunisian traders in the port who asked in Spanish what had brought him there. He said, We came to seek Christians and spices which characterizes the goals of the voyage in both religious and economic motivations. Now, there are several points to note for the duration of Dagama's stay, which amounted to three months in total. Firstly, in the religious aspect, the manuscript mistakenly describes the Hindus they encounter in Calicut as Christians. One of the stranger quotes in the journal involves the description of a Hindu temple as a church, and I think the entire quote is bizarre enough to be read out in full. Quote, First, the body of the church is as large as a monastery, all built of hewn stone and roofed with tiles. The main doorway had a bronze pillar, as high as a mast. On top of this pillar sat a bird, apparently a cock, and another pillar as high as a man, and very stout. In the centre of the body of the church was a round chapel, all of hewn stone, which had a bronze door wide enough for a man to fit through and stone steps leading up to it. And inside this chapel was a small image, which they said represented Our Lady. We did not enter this chapel, because their custom is that only certain men who serve the churches may enter. They threw holy water over us, and gave us white ashes, which the Christians of this country are in the habit of putting on their foreheads, breasts, around the neck, and their upper arms. They performed this entire ceremony on the captain and gave him the ashes to put on. Many, many other saints were painted on the walls of the church, wearing crowns. But their painting was in a different style, because their teeth were so large that they protruded an inch from their mouths, and each saint had four or five arms. Unquote. Anyone who's even slightly familiar with Hindu practices would recognize the descriptions. And I could go on about the specific practice each teacher refers to, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast. But this description is obviously very non-Christian. So why would the Portuguese even mistake any non-Muslim place of worship 
to be Christian at all. It's easy to chalk it up to ignorance, but there is some evidence that Dagoma and his crew knew that it wasn't true. The reason that they were so eager to characterize any non-Muslim religion as Christian can be attributed to religious animosity due to the recent war with the Moors, but also economic benefits. Portugal wanted to form relationships with other Christian states in the East in order to cut off their dependence on Muslim traders in North Africa. And for the crew to pretend that they had achieved this goal in their writings, it would definitely impress the Portuguese king upon their return. On the other hand, economically, the Portuguese failed to impress the local ruler, the Zamorin of Calicut. They had set out for India with the goal of forging new relations and trade routes, but the goods they had brought paled in comparison with the rich resources. And Dagama was supposedly told that, quote, it was nothing to give a king, referring to the resources that he had brought, and that the poorest merchant who came from Mecca would give him more than that. The Portuguese had no idea of the trading goods that were Asian ports at the time, and their small gifts of red hoods, coral, sugar, honey, and oil meant little to the Zamorin, who ruled over one of the most bustling ports in the world at the time. So obviously, Dagama's gifts were rejected, despite his protests that they came straight from the Portuguese king, and he was forced to trade outside of the city. Even then, he was rejected by Muslim traders and only managed to sell off their goods to curious locals, who offered much lower prices than in Portugal, and so therefore incurring a loss. Another important thing to note is that there was already trade between Asia and Europe since Roman times. Dagama met several traders who spoke a variety of European and Asian languages, and Asian products were shipped to Europe via the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. These traders were mostly Venetians or Muslims, and popular traits at the time included gold and spices. So it's necessary to remember that Dagama did not link up Asia and Europe. That link was already present even before his arrival. But he was indeed the pioneer of the Cape Route. And Dagama's arrival was also much more significant, because he was not a private merchant like these traders, but an ambassador of the Portuguese king. So having failed to make an impression on the Zamorin, the written journey back from Calicut was even worse for Dagama and his crew. They were sailing against the currents and the winds that had helped them in the voyage to India, and so they took a much longer time, and half of the men and two ships were lost along the way. But upon returning home in 1499, Dagama was rewarded, with the Portuguese king boasting to the Spanish rulers that he had stumbled upon a land of riches. Now that we've explored the timeline and impacts of the first Portuguese exploration to the east, I want to turn to a comparison between Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama. Since I've touched on the theme of European pioneers and explorations in these two episodes, Columbus and da Gama have remained big names in nationalism. Columbus's legacy in the American consciousness and da Gama's position as so-called the discoverer of Asia, as a Portuguese hero. I think it's important to deconstruct major figures of colonization in studying the history of colonialism. And this can so often be obscured in nationalist and Eurocentric narratives. So there are a few questions to answer here. First, how did Columbus compare to Dagama as a maritime explorer? Dagama obviously had explored much further and much longer. He spent three months at sea 
compared to Columbus's 30 days at sea. Da Gama sailed a significantly longer distance, traversing down the Atlantic across the Indian Ocean compared to Columbus, who just went southwest across the Atlantic Ocean. Vasco da Gama's opening of the Cape Route would be more important in establishing European trade routes than Columbus's expedition to the Americas. So da Gama's exploration would have been much more economically and politically beneficial in the short term. Also, perhaps most obviously, da Gama had achieved what him and Columbus had set up for. Da Gama had actually landed in India, while Columbus had not, and still somehow believed he had. But this also leads to another question. Why was Columbus memorialized way more significantly when compared to Dagama? What was crucial in shaping their legacy would be the locations that they landed in. The Americas eventually became a settler colony, whereas India wasn't. While Europeans would settle in the Americas and essentially commit genocide in the next century or so, Dagama's encounter with India would only bring European trade companies there for the next century. There was no mass displacement or genocide. These European trade companies were only a small stake in the mighty Indian empires and trade routes of the time. And this is also related to the narrative of so-called discoveries. Dagama was coming across a large, sophisticated empire, but Columbus was portrayed as having met tribal people. Columbus would thus have fit into this larger narrative of Europeans having newly, quote, discovered a continent while Dagama was only establishing a route with the trading ports of the East. Both Columbus and Dagama were not the Steria explorers that they have sometimes been portrayed as. They were men who also exploited the lands and peoples they landed on. Columbus kidnapped slaves from the Caribbean, and Dagama was violent towards those on the African coasts along his voyage to India. And they both shared a common attitude of brutality. Sure, they believed that they had charted new routes for their rulers, but at the same time, this would always come at the expense of the natives they had met, who were perceived as less than them as human beings. So to conclude, in this episode, we touched upon the context in which Portuguese explorations to India started, from going down the West African coast to rounding the Cape of Good Hope. And then we followed Vasco da Gama's 1497 journey to the East African coast and Calicut in India, marking the start of the Cape route. We've also compared Columbus and Da Gama, tracing their similarities as exploitative colonialists, but also the difference in their posthumous legacies. This marks the end of the episode. Thank you for tuning in once again, and stay tuned for the next episode.